So we don't know what it what happened exactly, but somehow the sermon from last week got lost. The recording disappeared, didn't record right. I don't know uh, what happened exactly, but I'm going to do a recap here just so we have it documented here on the podcast. And uh, if you are listening along, you can stay informed and up to date with the series. So uh, I'm going to do a little recap here from 1 Peter 3, verses 13 to 17. The sermon was entitled, Suffering for Doing Good. Peter is in the main section of his letter. It's talking talking about the main body of Peter's letter to hopeful exiles here in this passage. And this whole section is really addressing the question, how should God's people live in a right relationship with unbelievers in a pagan society? We translated that question for ourselves today as, how should we as the people of God live in a good relationship with non-Christians wherever we live, work, or play. And Peter, as we see him addressing this whole topic of living as resident aliens or as strangers or as foreigners in the world and interacting with people who don't believe the same things that we do or uh, love the same things that we do or have the same vision of the good life as we do, Peter says the first priority should be our own battle with sin. That should be our focus, to maintain our good conduct so that possibly those people who are different than us or, uh, or other than us, they might be saved. And part of that good conduct um, should be submitting to authority, the authority that God has placed in our life. For all Christians, we should be people who respect authority in the social order, whether that be authority structures in governments or in the household. We should be people who should submit. And that's not only just because it's a good, acceptable conduct for the society that we're in, but it's also a reflection of our Savior who himself submitted to the Father and to death. So as Christians maintain their good conduct in an unbelieving world, Peter says that people might be saved through that conduct, through that lifestyle evangelism. That's one of the ways people might respond to us living as a Christian. But also, there's another way people respond. It's, it's something that we might be more used to, and that's the response of suffering, persecution, oppression, or mockery. Not all people will respond well to the idea of Christians living out their values in society. So by the simple act of Christians living out what they believe and what they value— and how they represent the life of Jesus in their own life, they will be met with opposition. And uh, that's what Peter is addressing here. And we're going to take up a modern example of this later. Um, But first, let's just dive into this text, see some of the main things Peter's teaching us here from this passage. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you 
for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do this with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So let's look at some of the particulars of this passage and what it's teaching us, and then we'll apply that to the situation we may face as Christians today. Number one, you will be blessed when you suffer for doing good. As Christians, we will be blessed when we suffer for doing good. So this is a a specific type of suffering that Peter's talking about in this passage. It's not suffering in general, like the uh, general pain and hurt that's part of the natural world or everyday life. The suffering he's talking about here in this passage is suffering that Christians experience as a result of their zealousness, their passion for what is good and their righteous activity. So this suffering is particular to suffering at the hand of people who oppose, slander, revile, mock, or persecute Christians for being and acting like Christians. That's important as we look at the implications of this verse or the application of this verse going forward. But, but Peter has something to say about this type of suffering. It's that it's not the last word in the life of a Christian. Though Christians suffer now, suffering does not rob them from experiencing God's ultimate blessing of salvation. That's the blessing that Peter's talking about here. It's not that there will be some balance of consequences in your life, like the more you suffer from others today, the more God will bless you tomorrow. No, he's pointing to the fact that though you may suffer today, there's no amount of suffering that will disqualify you as a child of God. The oppression of other people cannot rob from you your identity as a child of God. It will not rob the future salvation God has in store for you as his child. And that's an encouragement to us as Christians. Peter's using that as an encouragement for the Christians that are experiencing that suffering and oppression, that their suffering is not outside of God's will or God's control, and it will not have the last word in their life. So number two, because of that, Peter says, do not fear or be troubled by those who slander or oppose you. So for the Christians suffering at the time of Peter, this command would have been a lot more pointed, right? They were not only facing like verbal abuse or marginalization, or they weren't simply not having their songs play on the radio. They weren't just simply having people not say Merry Christmas to them or whatnot. They're they're experiencing possible imprisonment and death for their Christian beliefs and values. So they were experiencing a greater temptation to fear their oppressors than we would have. So this command for them to not fear is even more applicable to us. We should not fear the threat of a lower social status. We should not fear the threat of not being respected in society. We should not fear the threat of losing our subcultural identities or or anything like that. We should not let any threat to our well-being or our social status deter us from continuing to do good. We should not fear or be troubled by those who criticize us or slander us for the faith 
And that's a very important principle for uh, Peter here, because it's so easy to make decisions based on the fear of what man can do or what man thinks of us. And Peter says, we should not let those threats of um, possible physical harm or uh, a lessening in cultures, cultures, um, appreciation of us or the social status of Christians deter us from continuing the good conduct that we're called to as Christians. Now, there's more to responding to the criticism than simply not being troubled and not fearing. Because if we stop here, it may be easy to assume that Peter's taking up this position of passivity, that Christians should right just keep their head down, block out the, the haters, and keep going along their merry Christian way. Like, just build your walls, block them out, uh, be deaf to them. That's not simply what Peter is saying here, because he calls them to do more than that. Not simply to not fear and not be troubled, but he calls them to have an active response, which is what we turn to in the next points. Number three, he says, set apart Christ as Lord in your heart. So listen carefully. When you're facing persecution and mockery for being a Christian, one of your first priorities for you needs to be a heart check. Check your own heart. Make sure that the words and actions that you're being criticized for are flowing from a heart that prioritizes Christ as Lord. Do you have a desire for Jesus to be set apart as the king of your heart, the Lord of your life? And is it that desire that's causing others to criticize you? Are people criticizing you because you are so committed to the lordship of Jesus in your life that your life confronts them with who Jesus is and what he's all about? Because listen, people criticize supposed Christians all the time. But that does not necessarily mean that those Christians are acting from a sincere desire in their heart to reflect Jesus' lordship. And we have countless examples of Christians being criticized in our world today for things they should be criticized for and things that have nothing to do with Jesus. Uh, I'm not going to go into all the scandals, but it's almost like week after week you see something either in our own Southern Baptist Convention as of recently, in um, some big churches in America and their leaders, you see just moral failure. Or with the Catholic Church, you see a lot of criticism. And a lot of times Christians are being criticized for good reason. Not because they're prioritizing Christ as Lord in their heart, but because they're not doing that, right? So when we're being criticized, this is one of the first things we need to do. We need to check our own heart. As you face suffering from others, make sure that your words and actions are flowing from a sincere desire to display the lordship of Jesus. Are you being criticized because of that? Are you being criticized rightly because you're not reflecting Jesus well? And and furthermore, as you continue to suffer in this world and train yourself how to suffer well, it's this understanding of the lordship of Jesus that will equip you to suffer well. My regard for Christ's holiness will determine how well I respond to suffering. Knowing the lordship of Jesus will help me suffer well. Continuing to fasten my heart to Jesus and that he will guide me through life 
and through my suffering will equip me to suffer well. So something needs to happen in my own heart, in my, in my disposition, in my love for Jesus that will equip me to suffer well. Number four, last teaching here that I really want to hit home. Um, Peter says, be prepared to reasonably respond with gentleness and respect. Now, this is a loaded statement. It's very important, like we said earlier, though. This is um, part of the active response of a Christian to opposition. Not simply being passive and building walls and blocking them out and not hearing them. Peter wants you to prepare yourself for that opposition and then be able to give a reasonable and thoughtful response to them with gentleness and respect. So this includes people who persecute you, as well as those who are maybe simply interested or attracted to how you live your life. But we have to ask ourselves this question, are we prepared to reasonably answer why you live the way you do. When people ask you, why do you prioritize for you and your family to be um, at church on Sunday? Do you have an answer to that? For the students, I asked them, I said, do you have an answer for, for your friends that ask, why do you go to your youth group on Wednesday nights? Why do you set aside time to read your Bible? Why do you believe the things that you do? Do you have a reasonable answer to them. Now, this is the classic apologetics verse, if you're familiar with that arena at all. Um, it's often where people um, in the faith talk about defending the faith, and I, I there's usually a time, at least for me, uh, where you get really into that or somewhat obsessive, um, but Christians talk a lot about this arena of defending the faith, and for me, my experience, it often took the form of just memorizing arguments and answers to people's questions. And it kind of had the negative effect to, uh, for me in that much of popular Christian apologetics equipped me to answer questions that nobody in my life was asking. And what I'm, what I'm saying is we start to kind of detach apologetics from the relationships we're in. And instead of focusing on how to have conversations with people, um, around the topic of Jesus and who Jesus is and whatnot, we just try to like load up our brains to to have all these memorized arguments um, and answers to people's questions. And I'm not by any means saying that's not important to acquaint yourself with some of those classic traditional Christian reasons for the faith and arguments throughout centuries. But I think the the thing we should focus on more is this whole idea of gospel-centered conversations. Because today, it just seems that no one can have a respectful conversation anymore. Probably because we try to have those conversations on social media, which is just not a good idea for a whole plethora of reasons. But I think it's helpful to think of our preparedness in terms of being equipped to have a conversation with those that question how you live. And more important, it's how you get to the heart of the gospel with those conversations with gentleness and respect. So let's think of it this way. Like, am I prepared to steer conversations towards the gospel? How do I have gospel conversations? How do I frame up uh, answers and questions and discussion of current events and uh, just anything and steer that towards the, the gospel? So I didn't say much about this um, Sunday night. 
But we're going to devote a Sunday night specifically to doing that, to steering conversations to the gospel, how to have gospel-centered conversations. And um, so I didn't say more about that that night, but that's something that we're going to do anyway. So that's the point here is that we should have the preparedness to respectfully and gently respond to give a reason for our hope. And that's an active response to people that oppose us. And also notice that this is in itself a way to maintain your good conduct and silence those people's arguments against you. Peter says it a bit more harshly. He says that responding in this way will cause those who revile you to be put to shame. In other words, if you have a reasonable and respectful response, then that is the way you will discredit their attacks against you and maintain your good conduct. And that's what Peter's driving at here. So let's take this passage and bring it into our day and take a modern day relevant scenario and apply the teachings and principles of this this passage. Because just this week, I read an article by a Washington Post columnist. I think his name was uh, Richard Cohen. And uh, this is what he wrote, and I'm taking it somewhat out of context, but I'm trying to capture uh, most of what he said. But this is this is what he says, and I think it's in response to some of the things happen, happening in Virginia with... Um, I'm not well-read on that situation, but this is what he says. If bigotry is repugnant, why not demand the resignation of Vice President Pence for his ugly views on homosexuality. And while they're at it, why not insist that Pence's wife, Karen, resign her position at the school that discriminates against gays and lesbians? Cohen writes, I can guess their answer. The Pences are deeply religious and their views on homosexuality are based on their religious convictions. To this I say, so what? The Bible was used to justify slavery, and in my own time, racists cited this or that biblical passage to assert that racial segregation was precisely what God intended. So that is a notable, probably normal attack that's leveled against Christian views and values of today. This one was particularly leveled against Vice President Pence for what I would call to be a Christian view on homosexuality, a biblical view on homosexuality. But let's just, like, tackle this statement. How are we supposed to respond to this sort of opposition or mockery or criticism as a Christian based on the passage? And first, let's have a reasonable response to this. Let's have a thoughtful, gentle, honest response. And that means we have to tackle this charge that he said the Bible was used to justify slavery because it actually, in doing that, it provides us some important clarification in regards to the application for a passage. So the Bible was used to justify slavery. He's saying because the Bible is used to justify slavery, Pence's... um, scheme of using the Bible to justify homosexuality is wrong and off base. So let's just say this. Yes, in America's past, many Christians used the Bible to support racial segregation. And this view was a distortion of the biblical text and a horrible misinterpretation. 
It was not a claim to biblical authority. It was a distortion of biblical teaching. Yes, slaves existed at the time of the Bible, and the Bible addressed how masters and slaves should interact with one another in a way that uh, upheld their value as a human being. But never did the Bible teach or assert that ideally another human being should be unwillingly subjected to slavery, and certainly not on the basis of their race or skin color. Uh, As Wayne Grudem, he summarized, slavery and oppression are always viewed negatively in Scripture, while freedom is viewed positively. Still, despite all of this, right, we can argue that till blue in the face and tell people that it was a distortion of the Bible. We still need to recognize that society's reaction to our claims of, well, this is what the Bible says, right, that kind of reaction from us is often loaded with these experiences that they've had of Christians using the Bible as a tool to support their own personal preference or opinion. So part of us as Christians responding with gentleness and respect to people who ask us why we believe what we believe concerns our recognition of their experiences, especially bad experiences. Because listen, there are many people that have been hurt, burned, and scarred by self-professed Christians and their selfish, bad interpretations of the Bible. So part of responding to them with a manner that Peter wants us to, with gentleness and respect, means that we take those experiences into account. We don't simply discount them, bluntly overlook them, or just quickly write them off. There may need to be a little bit or a lot of deconstruction of these people's experiences with bad examples of Jesus and bad Christians. And this takes time. You're not going to give people a one-liner or a quick argument that will do justice to all of that. So you you may need to ask them to get coffee, to get dinner, to sit down and chat for a while, or just listen to them and ask good questions, right? Responding with gentleness and respect includes your willingness to be patient with people's misunderstanding and hurtful experiences. So in the case of Christians being criticized for supporting racial segregation, I would say that that society's um, criticism of that view is valid because it's not and, and um, it's not a biblical value. It's not a Christian value. Racial segregation is not. So If people criticize Christians for supporting racial segregation, those Christians are not being criticized for a biblical truth. They're not being criticized from a genuine desire to see Christ's lordship reflected in their life. They're not suffering for doing good, right? That's an important point. That's the specific type of suffering Peter's talking about here. It's the suffering for righteousness' sake. I would say that it's not righteous, it's not good to use the Bible to support racial segregation. And that's an important point we have to make, again, not all the criticism you receive is because you're seeking to do good, to live as a reflection of Jesus. Some of the criticism I receive has nothing to do with my claims of, of following Jesus, and it has everything to do with me being a jerk, Right? So there are times in my life that I'm criticized or that I suffer, but it has nothing to do with my desire to see Jesus' lordship reflected. So just because people criticize you, this does not 
automatically mean that you're being criticized for your faith or for doing good. In other words, you suffering or being criticized is not an automatic validation of blessing. So getting back to this article by the Washington Post, Cohen is specifically criticizing Vice President Pence for a Christian value that he has. Pence and his wife apparently believe that marriage is a God-designed institution that should be between one man and one woman. I would say that's not a misreading of the Bible or a distortion of biblical teaching by any means. The Bible affirms that in God's um, design of the cosmos and of humanity and of society, that marriage should be between one man and one woman. And anything other than that is a perversion of God's good design. Now, such an opinion like that is labeled bigotry and hateful. That's what Cohen said. He called it bigotry. And and later in the article, he said, quote, "Um, it is simply wrong to foster a belief that homosexuality and same-sex marriage are immoral. As a Christian, As a person who believes in the revelation of God, uh, authoritatively inspired and preserved in the Bible, and as someone who believes in the reality of Jesus, my view of same-sex attraction and homosexual behavior is viewed as wrong, hateful, and bigoted in the world's eyes. So as I unashamedly hold to God's good, beautiful design of marriage— I fully anticipate that I will receive suffering, slander, and labels of bigotry and hate in our world today. So in light of Peter's passage, how should I practically respond to this criticism of being a bigot or hating those who struggle with same-sex attraction or act on that in the form of homosexual behavior? How should I respond to that criticism? Number one, prioritize your own heart. Reaching back to Peter's first priority on how to live well in an unbelieving world, Christians need to prioritize our own battle with sin before we quickly turn to point out the flaws of others. So in regards to this topic of same-sex marriage and homosexuality, honestly, we should probably spend more of our time as a church focusing on our own battle with sexual sin. How are we as the church doing in regards to sexual sin? How do our marriages look? How are we dealing with the epidemic of pornography addiction? See, we're quick to talk about their sexual sin, but what about our lustful hearts? And Peter's uh, whole stream of thought here would be pointing us back to our own heart, our own battle with sin, before we start picking on the unbelieving world for having behaviors that match their unbelief. That's a whole nother tangent, but number two, prepare for opposition. So prioritize your own heart and then prepare for the opposition. In one respect, we should expect it and therefore repair, prepare for it. As already mentioned, we should prepare our hearts, focus on your own heart and holiness. If Christ is your Lord, you'll seek to love others as Christ loves. So this means that you will enter conversations with an attitude of love towards the other person even if they appear to be your enemy, not simply just trying to trump their argument and, you know, um, get the upper hand intellectually or make them look stupid. We are starting with a position of love towards them. So we prepare our hearts. We also prepare our minds. We need to be prepared to give a rational reason for the hope that is in us. 
More importantly, be equipped to steer the conversation to the gospel. Now, taking the particular topic we, we are talking about with this article of homosexuality, we should prepare ourselves as Christians to steer those conversations to the gospel. Because one of the mantras of the current culture, and, and specifically of same-sex attraction and sexual identity, is this idea that my natural feelings and desires are inherently good, and the solution to the brokenness that I feel is to act on my natural desires. See, the world is telling us that true satisfaction is, in, is found in embracing our desires and acting on them. And I would just tell you, this is completely anti-gospel. The gospel shows us that we are not inherently good, that my natural sinful desires will not lead me to true satisfaction, and that my only satisfaction in life will come when I find my identity, my true humanity in Jesus Christ. So do you see how this, this has shaped the current cultural climate of same-sex attraction and sexual identity. The world is saying that we will find our true identity in gratifying our fleshly desires, and the gospel says that this will only lead to further bondage to sin and brokenness and chaos and ultimately leads to destruction. The good news of Jesus is that he came to deliver us from slavery to self, and to free us to new life in the resurrection of Jesus. So as a Christian who's informed by the gospel, I do not think the solution to same-sex attraction is to act out those desires and find one's identity in fulfilling those desires. True satisfaction only comes by surrendering our lives to Jesus, losing our life in him, and finding fullness of joy in who he says that I am as a child of God. And notice also, this is so important, this does not put people who struggle with same-sex attraction in a different category of sinfulness. You know what I'm saying? Like, they are struggling with the same basic battle that everyone faces. The battle between my will and desires and God's will and desires. Therefore, in the same way God can deliver me from my ongoing battle with fleshly sinful desires, God can deliver anyone. So you see how we need to drive these conversations to the gospel, specifically this conversation. We need to drive it, steer it to the gospel. We cannot afford to do anything else. We do not simply want people's behavior to change, right? We want them to find their identity in Jesus. And this topic, this conversation gives us the opportunity to do that. Giving them anything else, like simply um, a an ethics lesson or a biology lesson is selling them short on the gospel. So prepare yourselves to have those sorts of conversations. Okay, number three, and we'll roll through these last two quickly. Uh, number three, um, prioritize your own heart is number one. Prepare for oppositions, number two. Number three, live a life of hope. Uh, this is There's one thing I want to say about this, why it's so practically important. It, it frees you when you fo- face opposition from this burden of perfection. Notice, people will not question your perfection. They will question your hope. The fact that you have a hope means you're not yet home. You have not yet arrived. You are still patiently waiting for the full experience of 
your salvation. So this means that you are not called to act like you have it all together and that you're better than everybody else. You're called to point to the perfect Jesus who is better than life. When people criticize you for judging them, which is a popular criticism for Christians, may they also see that you're not perfect and that it's only by the grace of God, the same grace that can be extended to them, that you will be made new like Jesus. See, living a life of hope means living with honesty, not hypocrisy. Also notice that these three things should all happen, right? Prioritize your own heart, prepare for opposition, um, live a life of hope. All three of these things should happen even before you have any confrontation with someone. Right? These things are, are how we're supposed to be actively preparing and living so that we can um, have confrontations with people in a good, honorable way. And I would say that this is why we do not handle confrontation with opposition well, because we're not doing all of these things to be ready for it when it comes. We're not prioritizing our own hearts. We're not preparing for it to give a reasonable uh, response uh, with gentleness and hope. And we're not living a life of hope. If we don't do those three things, we'll never respond um, to opposition well. But number four, do not fear those who oppose you. When people do oppose you, do not fear them. Do not be afraid of the conversation. Do not fear that they will uh, shame you. Most of us fear conversations because we've not wrestled through the questions ourselves. And we haven't wrestled through the questions because we are afraid of the answers. We need to stop operating out of fear and operate more out of love. And love involves trust. So do you trust God enough to explore the tough questions? And do you trust God enough to love even when those people oppose you? I, I promise you, you will not respond well. You will not live well in a world where you are in exile as a, as a Christian if you have a main interaction of fear. You should love more than you should fear. Lastly, engage with gentleness and respect. The way in which we respond matters. We could go on for a while on how to better do this, how to respond with gentleness and respect. But this is what we'll say. The manner in which you respond matters, especially in regards to sensitive topics. We should be gentle and respectful, not brash and harsh there is a time for tough love, absolutely. Jesus gave some tough love at times, but let it be gentle and respectful. Don't let them get the idea that you do not care about them, that you do not want to hear them out, but engage with gentleness and respect. And I would just say this, don't do this in a quick format like social media. Give them the time. Give them the patience to hear them out, listen well, and engage with gentleness and respect. I think that's how we as Christians who are living as resident aliens here can respond well to those who oppose us for our good conduct, who oppose us for wanting to live a life that reflects Jesus as Lord of not only our lives, but of the universe. And so hopefully that is helpful for you. I find it helpful for myself as we study through 1 Peter. And we'll continue on this topic of suffering um, as we work our way through the next few passages.